So John, and let's just get it through our heads. This John who's writing this, John was one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the 12, but he was also one of the three, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest to Jesus, who it would appear from reading the New Testament spent the most time, and Jesus had a deeper relationship with those three than even with the other nine, all right? Uh, so he, he spent like three years with Jesus. I mean, he saw everything Jesus did. He heard every teaching, every sermon that Jesus ever preached. And probably, most likely, he heard those sermons over and over and over and over again when they would travel from village to village. So he had a lot of exposure to Jesus. So when we read this, that's who's writing it based upon what he saw. This is his testimony. This is his witness to what he saw and what he heard in spending all that time with Jesus. So he writes this. In the beginning was the Word, capital W, Word. Stop. <laughs> What's that about? Um, I like to think of that or think it's helpful to think of that almost as code language. Uh, John is likely speaking to a bunch of bright people around, philosophers, people who, Greek philosophers, that kind of thing. And they would have known that he's talking about wisdom, the wisdom of the universe. Or for him, it would have been the wisdom of God. The word is God's wisdom. The word is, we're going to see more than that, God himself. John Calvin, the great theologian of the 16th century, uh, liked to interpret this as the speech of God. The word is the speech of God, God speaking, God revealing himself. Okay? Wow. But it's important, I think, to know that. In the beginning, he says, was the word. And the word was with God. And now here it comes. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, not John, the author of this gospel, but John the Baptist. He came, John did, as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He, John, was himself not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He, he came to that which was his own, his own people, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born now, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And then this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. So um, I, love a, I love a great story. And uh, I suspect, I'm almost certain, that all of you love a great story as well. And the stories that 
surround Christmas, the stories that give Christmas its meaning are some of the greatest stories ever told. At least in part, uh, that is because they are more than stories. They are big, overarching stories that not only give meaning to Christmas, but they give meaning to life itself. Perhaps that's why we never seem to tire of these stories. I mean, think about it. Year after year after year after year, we tell them as if they were fresh and new. Do our best to make them fresh and new. An angel. An angel comes to a young couple, to Mary and Joseph, and announces a pregnancy. I mean, big deal. Pregnancies are common occurrences, but this is not your ordinary run-of-the-mill pregnancy. No common occurrence here. This is a miracle of God. The child growing in Mary's womb did not get there by ordinary means, but was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this child is no ordinary child. This child is unique, says the story. On, on the one hand, this child is as fully, essentially, unalterably human as you and me. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Mary's baby is one of us. Mary's baby is one with us. But on the other hand, according to the scriptures, this baby is fully, essentially, and unalterably God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Mary's baby is one with us. Mary's baby is one with God. Fully human, fully divine. And in this season, we ask, what's that all about? Well, perhaps the Christmas story is like a story uh, told by another pastor who was at a dinner party. He was at a dinner party uh, around the Christmas season, and the home was brightly decorated uh, for Christmas, and there was an electric train set up around the base of the family's Christmas tree. A little girl was playing with the train, held the controls in her hands. She had it moving too fast, and it derailed. So there she was, bent over, and trying to put that train back on the track, and it wasn't going so well. Well, the host of the party noticed what was going on, noticed she was having problems, and he went over to help. And this is what he said to her. You can't fix it from above. You've got to get down beside it. And so he got down on the floor, on hands and knees, beside the train, and gently put it back on the track. The Word became flesh and came down beside us. We couldn't be fixed from above without the one who is above getting down beside us. Bret Hart was a great American storyteller of the 19th century. That would be the 1800s, all right? 
Born in Albany, New York, he moved west at the age of 17, and from there he wrote short stories about the wild, wild west. Well, in 1868, he published The Luck of Roaring Camp. Roaring Camp, a place where men panned for gold, gambled, drank, and fought with both fists and guns. Well, Sally was the only girl in town, and she was everybody's woman. She became pregnant, but died giving birth to a healthy baby. The question arose, who's the baby's father? And no one knew. The baby belonged to all the miners, and they all decided to do the right thing and care for the child. Where could the baby sleep? One of the miners uh, traveled 80 miles over the mountains to get a rosewood cradle. And how would the baby stay warm? Well, wool blankets were too rough for a baby, so silk blankets were ordered. A baby couldn't eat beans, bacons, and sourdough, so the miners bought a cow for milk, and one of them took up farming to provide the right food for the child. And surely it was not appropriate for a child to live in a filthy, run-down shack, so the walls were painted, the floors were cleaned, and windows were washed, nor would it be appropriate for some dirty, sweaty, cursing miner to hold the baby, so all the miners chose to clean up their act. They quit swearing. They took baths. They began to dress better. They even began to smell better. And there was no way, no way a baby could take a nap with the saloon piano blaring and with a bunch of rowdy men shouting and brawling. So a time out, a time of quiet was decreed each and every day so the child could take a nap. Well, then the day came when they decided to show the child the mines in which they all worked, but that old pit seemed too dark and dingy for a child, so they planted flowers, and they put up street lamps, and they built wooden planked walkways. Get the, get the scene? Little by little, over time, Roaring Camp was transformed from a rough-and-tumble town into a decent place to live, and all because a baby was born. I mean, what a story. But only a story, pure fiction, Bret Hart made up the story. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It, too, is a story, yet so much more than a story. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Mary's baby was born into our rough-and-tumble world, a world filled with the darkness of a of a mad King Herod, unjust taxes, political rule by force and violence, prostitution, superstition, racial hatred, and all kinds of self-centered and immoral living. 
He was God's light entering a dark world. He came as a gift. He came as heaven's gift. He understood that things could not be fixed from above. He needed to get down beside us and eventually lay down his life for us. The poet Carl Sandberg wrote these words. A baby is God's vote that the world should go on. Man, I like that. I really like that. A baby is God's vote that the world should go on. And I tell you this, Mary's baby, Mary's baby was the, de the deciding vote. Mary's baby was the proof that one vote, if it's the right vote by the right one, can make all the difference. Mary's baby is God's vote God's vote for us and for our world. Mary's baby was God's way of saying to humanity, I'm not giving up. I'm not going to let you down and I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to abandon you even to your own sin and darkness. Not now, not ever. I'll go anywhere. I'll do whatever it takes to make you mine again. Not counting it something to be grasped. I'll let go of my divinity, my godness. I'll make myself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and I'll go even further, humbling myself and becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. In the beginning, the very beginning, before there was light, before there was darkness, before there was heaven and angels, before there was earth and people, in the beginning, the very beginning, was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, the very beginning. Through Him, all things were made, all things, everything. Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing, nothing came into being without him. He made it all in the beginning, the very beginning. In him was life. And that life was the light of the world. The life light blazed out of the darkness and the darkness could not put it out. The darkness tried Oh, how the darkness tried and tried and tried and tried and still tries, but the darkness could not put it out, not then, not now, not ever. He was in the world, the world that was made through him, yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, to his own hometown. They didn't want him. They did not want him. But whoever did want him, whoever believed he was who he said he was, he gave the right to become a son, a daughter, children of God, born not by natural means, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, or a wife's desire, but born of God. In the beginning, the very beginning, was the Word, Jesus he made his dwelling among us. He pitched his tent in our midst. He moved into the neighborhood. Jesus, 
We have seen his glory. The one-of-a-kind glory, says John, like father, like son, full of grace, full of truth, generous inside now, true from start to finish, Jesus. In the beginning, the very beginning. Friends, this is the story that defines history for me. This is the story that defines and continues to redefine life for me. This is the story that has become the lens through which I look at everything. This is the story that enables me to see God, to see God at work everywhere, even in the mundane, even in the ordinary, and even in the darkness and in the face of evil. Too much of that around us these days. A number of years ago, I came across a wondrous contemporary Christmas story that reminds me of God's ongoing work in our midst, of God's constant presence and steadfast love. So here's the story, kids. The story is written by a single mother of three. Her name is Diane Rayner, and this is her story, she writes. I grew up believing that Christmas was a time when strange and wonderful things happened, when wise and royal visitors came riding, when at midnight the barnyard animals talked to one another, and in the light of a fabulous star, God came down to us as a little child. Christmas to me has always been a time of enchantment, and never more so than the year that my son Marty was eight. That was the year that my children and I moved into a cozy trailer home in a forested area just outside of Redmond, Washington. As the holiday approached, our spirits were light, not to be dampened even by the winter rains that swept down Puget Sound to douse our home and make our floors muddy. Throughout that December, Marty had been the most spirited, busiest of us all. He was my youngest, a cheerful boy, blonde-haired and playful, with, with a quaint habit of looking up at you and cocking his head like a puppy dog when you talked to him. Actually, the reason for this was that Marty was deaf in his left ear, but it was a condition he never complained about. For weeks, I'd been watching Marty. I knew that something was going on with him that he was not telling me about. I saw how eagerly he made his bed, took out the trash, and carefully set the table, and helped Rick and Pam, his brother and sister, prepare dinner before I got home from work. I saw how silently he collected his tiny allowance and tucked it away, spending not a cent. I had no idea what all this quiet activity was about, but I suspected that somehow it had something to do with, with Kenny. Kenny was Marty's best friend. And ever since they'd found each other in the springtime, they were seldom apart, inseparable. If you called the one, you got them both. Their world was the meadow a horse pasture broken by a small winding stream where the boys caught frogs and snakes, where they'd search for arrowheads or hidden treasure, or where they'd spend an afternoon feeding peanuts to the squirrels. Times were hard for our family, and 
We had to do some scrimping to get by. With my job as a meat wrapper, she writes, and with a lot of ingenuity around the trailer, we managed to have elegance on a shoestring, but not Kenny's family. They were desperately poor, and his mother was having a real struggle to feed and clothe her two children. They were a good, solid family, but Kenny's mom was a proud woman, very proud, and she had strict rules. How we worked, as we did each year, to make our home festive for the holiday. Ours was a handcrafted Christmas of gifts hidden away and ornaments strung about the place. Marty and Kenny would sometimes sit at the table long enough to help make cornucopias or weave little baskets for the tree. But then, in a flash, one of them would whisper to the other and they'd be out the door sliding cautiously under the electric fence into the horse pasture that separated our home from Kenny's. One night, shortly before Christmas, when my hands were deep in pepper note or dough, shaping tiny nut-like Danish cookies heavily spiced with cinnamon, Marty came to me and said in a tone mixed with pleasure and pride, Mom, I've bought Kenny a Christmas present. Want to see it? So that's what he'd been up to, I said to myself. It's something he's wanted for a long, long time, Mom, said Kenny. After carefully wiping his, or said Marty, after carefully wiping his hands on a dish towel, he pulled from his pocket a small box. Lifting the lid, I gazed at the pocket compass that my son had been saving all those allowances to buy. A little compass to point an eight-year-old adventurer through the woods. It's a lovely gift, Marty, I said. But even as I spoke, a disturbing thought came to mind. I knew how Kenny's mother felt about their poverty. They could barely afford to exchange gifts amongst themselves, and giving presents to others was out of the question. I was sure that Kenny's proud mother would not permit her son to receive something he could not return in kind. Gently, carefully, I talked over the problem with Morty. He understood what I was saying. I know, Mom, I know. But what if it was a secret? What if they never found out who gave it? I didn't know how to answer him. I just didn't know. The day before Christmas was rainy and cold and gray. The three kids and I all but fell over one another as we elbowed our way about our little home, putting finishing touches on Christmas secrets and preparing for family and friends who would be dropping by. The night settled. The rain continued. I looked out the window over the sink and felt an odd sadness. How mundane the rain seemed for a Christmas Eve. Would wise and royal men come riding on such a night? I doubted it. It seemed to me that strange and wonderful things happened only on clear nights. Nights when one could at least see a star in the heavens. I turned from the window... And as I checked on the ham and the lefts of bread warming in the oven, I saw Marty slip out the door. He wore his coat over his pajamas, and he clutched a tiny, colorful, wrapped box in his pocket. Down through the soggy pasture he went, 
Then a quick slide under the electric fence and across the yard to Kenny's house, up the steps on tiptoes, shoes squishing, open the screen door just a crack, the gift placed on the doorstep, then a deep breath, a reach for the doorbell and a press on it hard. Quickly Marty turned. He ran down the stairs and across the yard in a wild race to get away unnoticed. Then suddenly he banged into the electric fence. The shock sent him reeling. He laid stunned on the wet ground. His body tingled and he grasped for breath. Then slowly, weakly, confused and frightened, he began the grueling trip back home. Marty, we cried as he stumbled through the door. What happened? His lower lip quivered. His eyes brimmed. I forgot about the fence and it knocked me down. I hugged his muddy little body to me. He was still dazed, and there was a red mark beginning to blister on his face from his mouth to his ear. Quickly, I treated the blister, and with a warm cup of cocoa soothing him, Marty's bright spirits returned. I tucked him into bed. Just before he fell asleep, he looked up at me and said, Mommy, Kenny didn't see me. I'm sure he didn't see me. That Christmas Eve, writes Mama, I went to bed unhappy and puzzled. It seemed such a cruel thing. It happened to a little boy on the purest kind of Christmas mission, doing what the Lord wants us all to do, giving to others and giving in secret at that. I did not sleep well that night. Somewhere deep inside, I think I must have been feeling the disappointment that the night of Christmas had come and it had been just an ordinary problem-filled night, no mysterious enchantment at all. But I was wrong. By morning, the rain had stopped and the sun shone. The streak on Marty's face was very red, but I could tell that the burn was not serious. We opened our presents, and soon, not unexpectedly, Kenny was knocking on the door. Eager to show Marty his new compass and tell about the mystery of its arrival, it was plain that Kenny didn't suspect Marty at all. And while the two of them talked, Marty just smiled and smiled and smiled. And then I noticed it. Noticed that while the two boys were comparing their Christmases, nodding and gesturing and chattering away, Marty was not cocking his head. When Kenny was talking, Marty seemed to be listening with his deaf ear. Weeks later, a report came from the school nurse verifying what Marty and I already knew. Marty now has complete hearing in both ears. The mystery of how Marty regained his hearing and still has it remains just that, a mystery. Doctors suspect, of course, that the shock from the electric fence was somehow responsible. Perhaps so. Perhaps so. Whatever the reason, I just remain thankful to God for the good exchange of gifts that was made that night. So you see, strange and wonderful things still happen on the night of our Lord's birth. And one does not have to have a clear night either to follow a fabulous star. The word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us full of grace and truth. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never, ever put it out. Amen? And amen. Pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you for this most wondrous, greatest story ever told of you sending your son to come among us, to live among us, to be among us, to be with us, to take on our flesh, to live as he lived, to die as he died, to come back from death's cruel grave to promise us life. And we thank you for this wondrous story and all of the stories that surround Christmas, even the ones that are still happening today. May we simply be alert to you today, around us, now. Maybe in our family circles, maybe in our neighborhoods, maybe in our city or our world. But may we be alert to see you at work and also to choose to be a part of that work. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen.